Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. All right. Well, tonight we have the privilege to hear from a different voice. We are going to take a one-week pause in our series in the book of Romans. We'll jump into that. We're kind of on the home stretch in Romans, but we'll jump back into that next week. Um, tonight we get to hear from a good friend of mine, Pastor Rich Rivera. Rich is a native New Yorker. He is born and raised in the Bronx, and he um, is an experienced church planter. He is a man that I have a lot of respect for and love to hear his perspectives and, and, and to hear his vision for his neighborhood and his city. Um, I've known Rich for a few years now as part of the Acts 29 network. Redemption Hill is part of this network of churches that start new churches, and so we've been able to be a part of and significant partners with church planting work in Belfast, in Mexico City, in Havana, and now um, we have the privilege to be in a, in a partnership directly and explicitly a formal partnership with Pastor Rich as he works to plant Matthew's Table Church in the South Bronx. And so tonight we're going to hear him open our, God's word for us and preach a sermon, but in that you're also going to get to know him a little bit and, and hear his vision for ministry and what he's doing in his neighborhood, which absolutely has crossover and connection for us here in D.C. And so this is the new, the, the church plant that we are now entering into this partnership with, and I'm excited for you guys get to, to get to know him a little bit. And so would you join me in welcoming Pastor Rich? What's good, church? <laughs> so he already said it. I'm a native New Yorker, so I might sound funny when I talk. I've come to notice that. Um, let me just first thank God because this has been one crazy year, and it feels really good to be physically present with people in a space um, with people like that don't live with me and don't ask me for stuff all the time, it's great. So it's really good to be here with you all. Um, I wanna thank the pastors here, the leadership, the eldership for just kinda having us this weekend. Um, my wife and my son were with me earlier this morning. They couldn't be here in the evening service, but it's good just to kinda escape the city and get out and, and see other folks. So um, we came on a good weekend. So it was just like home, there was drama, we felt 100% comfortable, um, and yeah, as Pastor Bill just mentioned, um, we're planting a church, and we're naming the church Matthew's Table. We've done this already, and we're doing it again, and we're doing it because there is a particular conviction that we all hold for this thing that we call church. So before I jump into the text and before we talk about anything, I just kind of want to share how I articulate that conviction. And this conviction is basically my belief statement on church. So I believe that the church is made up of tragically broken yet divinely beautiful people who are being brought together to display the glory, the grace, and the goodness of God to a world that so desperately needs it. That's why we do what we do. And to kind of help you get a picture of what I mean by all of that, just think about God as an artist. 
some dude that you see in the street, and I'm, I don't say that irreverently, but some guy that you just see in the street picking up um, what we would call garbage, but to him they're discarded objects. And every neighborhood that he goes into, he picks them up. And you'll kind of see him doing this, and you're wondering why he's doing it. And one day, you, you end up in a museum, and lo and behold, there goes the artist um, standing in front of a beautiful mosaic. And you run up to him because you're kind of excited because you're like, I know this guy. I've seen him before. And he was like, and then you tell him, like, hey, I, I, I know you. I've, I've seen you picking up garbage. <laughs> I've seen you picking up all these discarded objects. And then he turns to you and says, well, basically, that's what I do. I gather the broken and I build the beautiful. What am I trying to say with that? that we are the discarded objects that God picks up and brings together. And, and the picture that we're left with, it's absolutely beautiful. Church is powerful. Um, but it isn't powerful in and of itself. There's a reason there is a power, and that's what we're going to get at today. So before I spoke about anything else for our time, I just wanted you to know that's the conviction that drives this church planting machine inside of me that just wants to see churches get planted because we want to see people get saved. We want to see people flourish. We want to see people go from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light and love of Christ. And he's doing that, and we just want to be a part of it. So with that said, I'm just going to ask um, if you can physically stand to please do so so we can read God's word, and then we'll jump in. We are in Matthew chapter 9, and we are looking at verses 9 through 13. So Matthew 9, 9 through 13. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he, Jesus, heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Won't you please pray with me? Father God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth will be found pleasing in your sight, and I pray that you would show off your glory for your people today. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, and we pray this in your son's beautiful, powerful, and magnificent name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so in this particular passage, um, or at least, at least it's my belief, this is thick with gospel goodies. We, we can do a lot here, and probably more than what I can do in the time that I have. So what I want to do is just tell you what I'm feeling and, and being led to marvel at and delight in um, when I read this text. So this is it. This is the big takeaway. This is the one thing if you want to write and take a note, this is what you would write. 
So Jesus is like no one, and his message is like no other. Jesus is like no one, and his message is like no other. And because preachers have to preach with points, I have two points to support that. Those two points are Jesus calls people to himself, and Jesus goes where the need is greatest. So Jesus is like no one. His message is like no other. Jesus calls people to himself, and his message is like no other. So let's look at verse 9 again. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, got up and followed him, Jesus. So we start with Jesus seeing Matthew. Do not skip over that part. Jesus sees us. He, in this case, he saw Matthew, and he saw Matthew at work. Matthew was a tax collector. Um, and if you have any amount of church background, you know that this wasn't good. Tax collectors are basically individuals who won a, a government bid or a contract to extract tolls and taxes from their own people to pass that forward to the Roman government, but they were allowed, after that agreed upon amount, to keep whatever they bought in on top of that. So if you're a business person, you would know you would try to get as much as you can from people so you can keep a nice chunk of change for yourself. So he was basically robbing his own people. He was a hated man within his community, and this is the man that Jesus saw. And I think that's noteworthy because when Jesus saw Matthew, he not only saw who Matthew was and what he did, but he also saw who he could be. And that happens with us, and it happens with folks around us. Remember, this whole thing is a part exposition of the text, but it's also a part of why we do what we do when we plant churches. If this is true, and Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then when he sees people, he sees the possibilities of what can be when that person comes under his lordship. And we get a chance and an opportunity, and we're gifted that to be a part of that work somehow, a work that we can't do, but we witness it, and that's a glorious and beautiful thing. It should be fun. Um, but sometimes it doesn't feel like fun. Sometimes it feels like a chore, and sometimes it's hard. And sometimes we don't want to go to certain people and talk about Jesus because we don't like what they did, we don't like what they do, or we don't like what we think they're going to do. Jesus saw Matthew, right? Matthew was a hated man within his own community. I don't think anybody here would want to be labeled a crook amongst their own people. Nobody wants to be hated on their block. Nobody wants to get looked at funny when you're in a supermarket. 
You want to be well-liked. Matthew didn't know what this was like because he made a choice. He decided to line his pockets, and he was hated for it. So this is who Jesus called. And when Matthew followed him, which is in and of itself is a little weird because I don't know how many of y'all would leave what you're doing at work to follow someone you didn't know. Now, scholars, there's some debate. There's some folks that think one way about this and some that think another. That nobody knows if Matthew and Jesus knew each other or had a relationship before this. But let's just go with what we got here before us. We, we don't know this, so we don't know if Matthew knew Jesus personally, but I'm guessing he knew enough. He must have heard something about this Jesus, and he wanted a little bit of what was going on. He must have heard about the miracles. He must have heard about the healings. He must have heard about the power. He, he heard these things because people talk. Because that's what happens on the block, right? People talk. Everybody knows everybody. And you know what's going on, which is why it's so hard to do this ministry thing sometimes. We would rather just hide and not be known or seen. And Matthew, being this hated man within this community... Matthew, knowing enough of Jesus, Matthew being a tax collector in a tax booth, which was basically a guarded safe haven behind bars because it held money and it was guarded by a Roman soldier, was faced with having to leave the stability, the income, and the security of his post to follow Jesus. He went from being guarded, right, to, to being out in a position where he could be touched. This is a scary thing. To be safe and have to step out of that safety to where you can be reached by any and everyone. Like, this was not a small thing. And if we run past it, like, you, you miss something beautiful here. Because for Matthew... To do this with Jesus, to even listen to him, Jesus had to have some sort of power, some sense of authority. There had to be something about how Jesus carried himself and how he walked that people were attracted to. And Matthew, there was something there that Matthew just heard, follow me, and he went. But when he let, went, he, he had to leave some things behind. He didn't take the toll booth with him. He didn't take the Roman soldier with him. He was, he was putting himself out in a vulnerable position now. I'm leaving everything to go out into the world and follow this man who calls me. And I've heard some things about him. I'm curious. But he called me. Knowing what I do and knowing what that means. And by that I mean the rep that he carries with his own people, right? Jesus wasn't worried about his rep. That wasn't that important to him. So he left some things behind. He left income. He left security. He left stability. He left some possessions. Um, but I think that he found a lot more by leaving those things behind. 
I think somehow he found purpose. I think he found dignity. Remember, Jesus was into this healing thing, and, and, and hurt people were getting healed. And you, you're going to have to assume that Matthew was a hurt person because it doesn't feel good to be hated by your own people. It doesn't feel good to know that the choice you made to provide for your family brings you scorn and hate. That's not, nobody wants that, so let's just assume, and you know, we, we want to stay in God's word. We don't play with it, but I believe in holy imagination. I want to I see the picture that's, that's being painted here. Matthew got some hurt. He needs to be healed. Jesus calls him. He's willing to leave everything behind to go follow him, unsure of what that meant. He didn't get to ask a question. He didn't get to say, so Jesus, what's this going to look like? What does me following you entail? What's going to happen? None of that. Follow me. He got up and he went. Um, and something else, just really quick. Matthew didn't leave everything behind because he took his gifting with him. If he was a toll booth collector, tax booth collector, collecting tolls and taxes for the Roman government, I, I would assume that he was pretty good at record keeping. He, was, he had some skill. He knew how to write down and record things. The text that we're reading um, is from the gospel account that bears his name. So there's a sense sometimes that, when, that we got to understand, like when Jesus calls us to follow him, he, he takes stuff that in our own hands was a burden, but in the Redeemer's hands become a blessing. So the same thing that extorted his own people is used to preach to all people. So he took that with him. The other thing that I want to just talk about before we move to the rest of the verses that I'm always interested in, because as a church planner and as a pastor, people always ask questions. Because if you're going to plan a church and you're going to do that, like you, the truth is everybody's ideal is that you don't plant with other Christians. That's the dream, that, that you, you do what you we read in Scripture where Paul would go somewhere and he would share the gospel and people would get saved and then he'd build up elders and there's a church and then he can leave. Like the church is a result of what happens when people get saved. Because Jesus is, remember, walking around, picking up stuff, building something beautiful. Everybody seems to want to ask in those spaces, like questions about this faith thing or this Jesus thing. And they, they pose some questions because they probably have some objections I don't know why, like, people think, like, faith is, how can I say this generously? They feel like following Jesus for, for whatever reason, right? The, the Bible. That's a limit on life. Like, they'll, they'll, be, they'll be like, well, if that's a restriction, right? Like, these are restrictions. I can't go this far. Like, my life is capped. It's limited. And they, they don't get it, but it's not that at all. Um, 
restrictions are a limitation. It's, a, it's like a framework for flourishing. Yeah. It's a safeguard. It, it keeps all of these beautiful things from going ugly because they, it, it keeps them in its right place. So they ask questions, and you can substitute whatever the hot topic of the day is, right? Like they'll ask questions about abortion or sexuality. Like what's the view on this? What does the Bible teach on this? What do you feel about this? What do you feel about that? Like today it's social justice. Like what do you think about that? What does the Bible say about this? And the truth is if you read the text, and it happens a lot, like Matthew 4.19, Matthew 8.22, Matthew 10.38, Mark 8.24, Luke 9. 59, John 1, 43, and there's, a, there's about like 19 more where Jesus says, follow me, not follow this or that. He never says that. He says, follow me. It's personal. And it's personal because what we're following is a physical being, a, a body. And that's what made me so happy to be here today. Like I'm with other physical bodies. Like our faith is an embodied faith. It, we're, 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 the church is called one body, many parts. Like, we're never fully whole without each other. That's why I like to be around people and to do that. So this idea of follow me is important because you're not following what the church says about something. You're following Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's him. So he could call you. He can do all of those things. He can see not only who you are or what you have, but what can be, because he isn't like anyone else, because he, he's Jesus. He's the only one that could do this. That's, it's powerful, like, but I don't know what happens. It gets old sometimes, and people lose awe and wonder the gospel. And like you, you fail to wake up and like be marveled by it. It happens all the time, but you shouldn't. You should wake up in the morning every day. I used to do this. I, I went through a, a three-month stretch doing this, and this was like the most spiritually attuned three months of my life. I would wake up in the morning, and I'd think of Philippians 127 and just say, as soon as I open my eyes, I say, oh, God, help me live a life worthy of the gospel today. That was my way of reminding me that I... I this is a gift. I get to do this? Like, this is amazing. Don't lose awe and wonder. We're following Jesus. Um, all right, let's just go to the next one. I, you, I'm going to do that a lot because my brain doesn't stop. I get all these things, and I don't want to get sidetracked, because I said this earlier. I'm starting to notice that D.C. is very linear. <laughs> I grew up in the projects in the Bronx. I am not linear. I will go all over the place, and we'll start talking like this, and I'll start bending down. So I don't want to lose any of that to scare anyone, because I don't want no beef with y'all. I want to come back when I can actually hug you some other time. So the second point, right? So, so we're good, right? Remember, Jesus is like no one. His message is like no other. Jesus calls people to himself. So, so we get the idea that Jesus sees us for who we are. He calls us anyway. That should be an amen. <laughs> Jesus sees you for who you are, and he called you anyway. 
Amen in Spanish. I'll do it. Yeah, don't lose all of that. That helps. And Jesus calls, or Jesus goes, excuse me, where the need is greatest. Verses 10 through 13. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I'm amazed that the Pharisees were there because I don't read that they were invited. That's crazy, right? I don't remember reading that the Pharisees were invited. This was, he's sitting with tax collectors and sinners. What do the Pharisees do? They wouldn't be caught dead with these folks. It's just interesting. I'm just going to leave that out there. It's fun to think about. It's also interesting to note that while they were there, probably uninvited, they just wanted to crash to be nosy because that doesn't happen on the block, right? People ain't nosy. Just to see kind of like what's going on, they ask his disciples, but not Jesus. They, they, they got a beef with Jesus, but they don't talk to him. They ask somebody else about him. That's the whole thing I just went through, remember? That you got to understand, like sometimes when you're out there and you're trying to do your thing, you, you, you get... You have the opportunity to know someone, and you, you get to know their story a little bit. You're trying to talk to them about what Jesus did for you, and they start hitting you with the questions. Well, what does the Bible teach about this? What does that? You, you feel it. You take it personal like they're coming at you. They're not coming at you. Their problem isn't with you. Their problem is, all right, if I follow Jesus, then my, like, worldview is going to be smashed. Everything that I thought I knew is going to be undone. It's going to change. So they're just looking to find an easy way out. So don't, don't give in to that. Graciously press in. So they ask his disciples about Jesus, and then it says here that Jesus, first, oh, let me, you, you, don't, you don't think it's cool that they reclined at tables? I just think that's cool. I know that somebody's going to say it was like the, the chairs and the way things was or whatever, but it's still kind of balling that you can just sit back on a pillow and, and you're laid out. And it's also super personal, right? Like intimate. You're laid down like you're in a vulnerable position with other people. That's why we like this whole table ministry thing. Jesus hears this and then he speaks back to them and he tells them, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Now, the Pharisees were the religious elite of the day, one of the groups, and they would not be caught dead with that type of company because in Jesus' day, there were only two types of people. They were the type of people that kept every little letter rigidly of the law and those who did it. And those who kept every little letter of the law would not mix or mingle with the type of folks that Jesus was mixing and mingling with. But because of Jesus, they were still in the same house. And that's something else we need to, like, stop and think about. Because wherever Jesus goes, there's drama. So, but for whatever reason, right, like, people end up in the one place under one roof. Jesus is still the one in control. And there's a chance there's an opportunity that he might call someone who we wouldn't have called. 
So we do this thing because there's always that chance that God is going to move in a way that we wouldn't have. So this reclining at the table, this dinner with, you know, the, the unseemly folks led to a question. Jesus' defense was simple but powerful. Well, healthy people don't need a doctor. Doctors go where the sick people are. And especially that's true for us now because I, I don't know about D.C., but like, and I know in New York, through all of this, at 7 p.m., everyone would go out their window and clap, right, for, for every, all the hospital workers because we wouldn't go to the hospital, not in the middle of a disease that's killing folks, right? I, I coughed the other day outside, and people looked at me like I was about to turn into a zombie. Like, I didn't feel good, right? Like, it's just like, I'm, I just cough, like I have allergies. But you feel like defending a cough. But Jesus' answer, his defense for his being there is this, like, well, where else am I supposed to be? It makes total sense. They're sick. But what the Pharisees couldn't see was that they were the sick ones. Jesus was actually talking about their spiritual Sickness. So he says, go and learn what this means, which is common for them. They'll understand what that is because that's, that's prophet language. That's the stuff you read in the Old Testament. And this I desire mercy and not sacrifice is from Hosea 6.6. 6. So he's pulling up their prophecy. And it, it's, it's important to note because I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus himself is the fulfillment of every prophetic utterance in Scripture. All the good that was prophesied, all the hope that was prophesied, all the help that was prophesied, the King, the Messiah that was prophesied, Jesus. So he's the fulfillment of every prophetic utterance. So he comes at them with that. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I'm not overly concerned with what you're willing to give up or to do with like I'm more concerned with what you're willing to lay aside for the sake of someone else and th that is a powerful thing that God uses <laughs> when you say I'll lay this my personal preference aside for my brother for my sister I am okay, and I will gladly lay it aside. It's a beautiful and powerful thing, and that it's laced in the work of church planning in like this very deep, subtle way where it doesn't have to be spoken, but it happens every day all the time. You lay something aside so that someone else would know Jesus as precious. So his defense was simple. It was powerful. The doctor's place is with the ill. Go at it. He quotes the prophets. And, and the prophets, I mean, the Pharisees, you know, they're, they're good at being religious. They're good with the sacrifice. And if anybody has some church history, you know this. And you know how the prophets spoke against this type of religion. You know how they spoke against it. You know the thus says the Lord. Speeches, sermons, 
prophetic proclamations against folks that outwardly would show off how righteous they are, but inwardly they're just rotten. Isaiah 58, just read that. Just read Isaiah 58. Matter of fact, do it tonight before bed. Read it. And think about this conversation that's happening at someone's table, Matthew's table. He quotes the prophets. He says, go and learn what this means. And I think, like, what he's saying to the Pharisees is this. Like, if you get this, what I'm saying right now, you get everything. If you can somehow wrap your mind around this thing, you get it all. Because I think what Jesus is saying, like, if, if he's telling them, like, you, you're super religious, I get it. But if you get this, then you're going to get that this is the end of the religion of you. This ain't about sacrifice anymore. You're not talking about what you're giving. You're not proudly parading that. That, that religion that exalts you is done. Now you can actually follow me. So he's saying, if you get this, you get everything. Um, and, and that's what happens, right? Like when you're obedient. And I, I spoke with Pastor Bill of this the other night. Like, you know, obedience is a thing. It's a bad word now because nobody wants to be obedient. But God calls us to stuff sometimes, and we have to be obedient. And I know nobody likes that, but, and nobody sees any fun in this. And something that I didn't mention earlier, I mean, when, in, in our sermon right now, but I mentioned earlier in the earlier service, was this, like, one of the things that Matthew found when he left, left that tax booth was, a, a, was life and adventure. Like, yo, do, do you think about, like, a Christian life as fun? Because it is, it's fun. You know, we, we, we get to witness resurrections all the time. Every, every time Jesus saves someone, boom, new life. We, I made a joke before about coughing and, you know, people looked at me like a zombie. There's zombies everywhere on your block. You get to witness resurrection life and power. You get to witness Jesus flex <laughs> and show off his glory. You get to witness that. That is fun. Because when you're witnessing that and you're thinking about those things, you're not, you, you know what you're not looking at? Yourself. You're not worried about your performance. <laughs> Before him, you're not worried about any of those things because the religion of you is done. You're following him. And remember this thing, follow me. What I, another thing that I didn't say was like, it's, it's actually following him. So Jesus is like no one. His message is like no other. Jesus calls people to himself and Jesus goes where the need is the greatest. If you follow in Jesus and not going anywhere, 
like, something's up. You don't get saved to sit. You get saved to be sent. There's language of that all in the Gospels. It's go, go, go. Jesus is walking. He's going. What is his disciples doing? Following him. So if Jesus goes where the need is greatest, and he's sitting in this room with tax collectors and sinners, who I believe are deeply hurt and are in pain because they're hated by their own people, let's just put it this way. If Jesus goes where the pain is, are we? Because that's why we do this thing. Because Jesus is going to those places. We don't have to wonder if he's, he's there now. It's our joy and our privilege to be a part of that. It's fun to be a part of that. When I, I there's still a little bit of time. That's what's good about the clock. <laughs> now I can tell you, you guys want to know a little bit about me? Yeah. All right, cool. I wasn't always this lovable. <laughs> I, I got baptized at the age of 30. I was the most unchristian man that you can probably get because I, I was a product of my community. We lived, this, like there were certain things that you just did. And the reason that I decided to plant a church was when I got saved, I knew that I got saved, that I got rescued. I know I didn't do it on my own because I wouldn't have chose it. I liked the way I was. I was, I was fine. There was some stuff that I had to leave behind if I did this thing. If I said, yes, Jesus, yes. And by the way, I, was, I still thought that I'm the one saying yes. I still thought that. And I'm, I'm glad that God allows us to think that. Because it doesn't take that long to be like, oh, no, I get it now. No, I never had a shot. I never had that power to make that type of decision. That was all him. So I just was like, okay, so how do you say thank you to someone who rescues you? And because I was the, or who I am, like, I was like, all right, so what's the most ridiculous, audacious way I can say thank you? I was like, oh, I get it. I'm going to plan a church. Because then I'd have to talk about Jesus all the time. That's why I do it. I honestly just want to see people get saved. Like, people are like, what, what's, you know, everybody wants to know your vision statement, your this. I'd be like, to see the South Bronx get saved. I'd be, I'm good with that. We plant churches because Jesus is still going to sit and eat with people that nobody else wants to eat with. And we want to be a part of that. And we are a part of it. And we're a part of it alongside you all. Because if you think where you live and where I live is that different, it's like, you know what? I worked in a 24-hour walk-in clinic registering detox and psych patients from midnight to 8 in the South Bronx before I did this. I worked with doctors, and one of the things I was always fascinated with was, like, this idea of, you know, actually curing people. Because they would admit, well, we don't cure nobody. <laughs> we treat the symptoms. Like, there's unhealthy, spiritually sick people everywhere. 
and we don't want to treat the symptoms, right? We, we, we actually have the cure for the disease because we sidestep and we point to Jesus because he can handle it. But one of the things is, like, our disease is the same. The South Bronx, Capitol Hill, same disease. It just presents different. The sin disguise is, sin is dressed different, that's all. And it has a different accent. But it's still sin. My block isn't that different than your block. Your life isn't that different from my life. Once we get to that real deep place, that true place when we're really us. That's who Jesus comes for. Like he did with Matthew. He didn't, he didn't come for the tax move job. He didn't come. He came for Matthew. When he came for rich, he came for rich. <laughs> and, and did he see who I was and what I did? Yep, but he, he must have also saw what it, what, what's possible, what I could be. And I'm good with that stuff. I, I, I love to dream about that type of stuff. So that's, that's why we're here and that's why we do what we do. That's why we're so glad that we've been able to partner with Redemption Hill with this church. That's why I'm glad that my family got bigger. Because if, 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 if you belong, if Jesus is your king and you're a citizen in, in his kingdom, then you're my brother and sister. You are my spiritual family. And I think that it is our responsibility and it is our joy and delight, each one of us here right now, to be a part of the family growing. So with that, let me pray, and then I will bounce off the stage. Not literally bounce. That's just a thing we used to say back in the days. Uh, Father God, thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, your word. Thank you for calling us from where we were, knowing us, knowing our stuff, Thank you for loving us, and thank you for making a way for us to have a, a life, not of limitations, but of restrictions that allow for flourishing. So the same grace that you showed in your word, you are still showing today, so we just ask that you would use us to be a part of that story. We love you, Lord. We thank you for what you have done, what you are doing right now, and what is yet to be done in your name for your people. We pray this, Father, in the wonderful, beautiful, and magnificent name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.